Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. We are nearly finished with our journey through this Old Testament book, and we are now tackling what is the first half of the final vision that God sends to the prophet Daniel there in his exile. But before we kind of get our bearings and dive into this text, I have a riddle for you. Okay, you guys ready? We do this a lot as a family. I give my kids riddles and let them chew on them. So you're in a room of a hundred men. Some have thick manly beards. Others are neatly clean shaven. Some are of darker complexion. Some are lighter skin. Some ripple with muscles. Others are kind of flabby or a slight There's a few men in there that shine with charisma. Some come across as meek and mild. Couple are awkward looking. Many are just kind of plain and nondescript. You hear some thick accents. Some men speak with the crispness and clarity you associate with an elite education. There are endless Factors that distinguish these hundred men from another. But one is the risen Jesus. So like me, you've never seen Jesus with your eyes or heard his voice with your ears. How will you know who he is? I want you to chew on that riddle. Hundred men One is Jesus. How will you know who he is? Now, there is a foolproof solution to this riddle, but I'm not going to give you the answer yet. I want you to sit with it for a while. But know that this isn't a hypothetical. One day, I do believe that you will see Jesus face to face. And when you do, I want you to be able to recognize him. So I'm going to leave you all in suspense with that riddle as we dive into Daniel chapter 11. So here's how the chapter starts, the vision that he is receiving. And as for me, the speaker says, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. So as we dive into this text, the person who's speaking to Daniel, to our old prophet, is a messenger from heaven. He's either an angelic warrior or he's maybe perhaps Jesus before he has taken on our flesh. But this person is speaking and it says he's confirmed and strengthened some figure. We learned last week that that figure was the archangel Michael who's Israel's special protector, and then he's going to share a word with Daniel. He's here to give Daniel clarity. God wants Daniel to understand and to record for coming generations the future that awaits God's people. And this vision is going to be a bit of information overload because it speaks of a future that Daniel will not live to see. So much of these, what's in these verses will be beyond his comprehension. 
And much that's in these verses will be a little bit impenetrable to us as well because they speak of a past that is so far in our past that it's slipped out of most of our collective memory. So there's a part of me that wants to go, okay, well, if this was largely irrelevant to Daniel and is largely irrelevant to us, why would we dig into it? But remember, this whole vision is an answer to prayer. Daniel was crying out to God. He was disturbed by reports that he was receiving from his homeland. His his fellow countrymen, they just returned from a 70-year exile in the land of Babylon. And they had finally, finally returned to the land they were with the kind of favor of the Persian Empire, they'd been permitted to go home and to start rebuilding their temple. And it was great news. But he's receiving reports from his countrymen that they're still facing difficulty and opposition and hardship. And Daniel says, I know the plans that God has for his people. He told us he has plans for our welfare and not our destruction. He's received these visions that say the Lord would rescue his people utterly and completely. There would be a grand jubilee. But he's learned that this hopeful future is a ways off and that the road to get there will not be easy. Faithfulness would be more difficult than God's people had initially supposed. So he had cried out to God. And God shares with his beloved son, and he shares with us, his beloved children, about the confusion and the challenges that are ahead. And he he tells us all this, not to break our spirits, but to brace us for the seasons to which he is calling us. And I do believe that the lessons God's people needed to learn in their time for the trying and difficult days that were ahead in their history, the lessons are equally important for us to learn today. Because while the situations that we face might look different, the way of Christ through them is unchanging. So we're going to wade into the complexity of this passage because the lessons that were for God's people back then are also for us right now. So let's dive in and strap in because this is some of the weird and complicated parts of Scripture, and I will try to not make them so impenetrable. So verse 2 And I will now show you the truth. And here is the vision. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he's become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against all the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, 
But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So Daniel's about to get a whirlwind tour of the next 400-odd years of his people's history. And he sees, right now he's at the beginning of the Persian Empire. They're in control of the, the territory that God's people are living in. And he, he sees that there's going to be more kings until there's this great and powerful king who we know by history is Xerxes, that famous Persian ruler. And that Persian ruler is going to pick a fight with the kingdom of Greece that he will ultimately lose. Indeed, the the wars between the Greeks and the Persians will end when a figure that we hear spoken of in this passage, Alexander the Great, will defeat and dismantle the Persian Empire. But soon thereafter, Alexander's empire is going to be carved up and divided after he meets an untimely end. And the kingdoms, his empire is going to be divided up into four warring kingdoms by his four strongest generals. So Daniel's getting this vision of what is going to be coming in his people's future. And there's wars and there's conquests and there's lots and lots of change. And we hear of these history makers, these kind of movers and shakers, the the world's best and brightest, the, the mightiest forces. And they're trying to carve up the land. They're trying to bend history to their will. But there seems to be this pattern that Daniel sees in Scripture. A violent empire rises up to power, and then it hits this unseen tipping point. And then God's judgment comes upon them. And there is great relief to know that one day God will wipe away every tear. He will right every wrong. He will banish evil once and for all. But it is also comforting to know that God often brings a dose of his justice within history as well. He doesn't let oppressive power just rampage unchecked across the earth. Indeed, he regularly rises up to to frustrate and to rebuke and to provide relief for the, the vulnerable and the downtrodden. And we see God kind of letting a kingdom rise up and then bringing them low. And then this next section of this text is going to focus in on the strife and rivalry between two of the kingdoms that were born out of Alexander's empire. And it's going to spend a lot of time here because the land of Israel sits on this thin strip of land between these two bitter enemies. So from an Israelite perspective, for the next several hundred years, the goings-on between these two Kingdoms, these two dynasties, are the most significant events that are happening in world history for them. And so God's going to give them insight of what those days will be like. And this is what we read in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, 
But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up in her attendance, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. So what is going on here? (laughs) The king of the north is this man named Seleucus. He was one of Alexander the Great's generals. He's the guy in bronze right there. And he established a base of power in what is now kind of the area of Syria. And so he is kind of the king of the north in this prophecy. And there's this other guy, Ptolemy, who was another one of Alexander's generals, who established a kingdom in Egypt. He's the king of the south. And as we learn about these two kingdoms, these two families... They were once allies, they were once brothers in arms, but their relationship has devolved into a blood feud. So you should be, as you hear about the Seleucids, as you hear about the Ptolemies, you should be thinking of uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, the, uh, the Yorks and the Lancasters in, in England, the Montagues and the Capulets from Romeo and Juliet. These guys are in this just bitter vendetta that lasts for generations. And in the verses we just read, we we see the origins of their feud. They had tried to unite their two houses with a marriage alliance. And this comes right out of one of those sword and sandal epics TV shows with all the political intrigue. So they had tried to unite their houses with a marriage alliance, but things went horribly wrong. So Ptolemy's son pledges his daughter Berenice in marriage to the son of Antiochus, except the son, I mean, the son of Seleucus, whose name is Antiochus. But he was married at the time. So in order for this marriage alliance to go through, he would have to divorce and send away his current wife and disinherit her sons from his kingdom. Well, the jilted ex-wife was not terribly happy about that, so she poisoned her now ex-husband, his new wife, and every Ptolemy who had come into town for the wedding. Slaughtered them all. And then the slaughtered queen, the sister who was killed, her younger brother hears of his sister's murder and marches at the head of an army from Egypt with just rage in his heart. And from there, it's over. They're going to be at each other's throats for generations, and it is going to be a big old mess. And we read in verse 8, he, this is now Berenice's brother, Ptolemy the third. 
the, the one who is avenging his sister's murder. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious, precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand." And when the multitude is taken away and his heart shall be exalted, he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So I'm not going to unpack all of that, all of the back and forth, but there's decades of bloodshed and bitter, bitter war. And just imagine what it was like for God's people. And can we go back, Greg, to that map? Living on this little strip of land between these two bitter enemies. In one 30-year span, their nation changed hands five times. They were just dominated by these two stronger neighbors. Then they were constantly having to shift their loyalties and allegiances back and forth from the Seleucids to the Ptolemies. But they couldn't overcommit, right? Because the the enemy might be back in charge in a few short years or months. And they're stuck in the middle of this war. And I think verse 14 is like the most interesting verse in this whole passage. In those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people, Daniel, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land, that is the land of Israel, with destruction in his hand. So there in verse 16, the land of Israel finally and decisively falls under the control of the Seleucids. The king of the north now stands in the glorious land with destruction in his hands. And as the Seleucids start to solidify their grip on the land of Israel, the heavenly messenger that has been sent to Daniel is going to tell of this terrible tyrant that will persecute and oppress God's people. It will be a holocaust of sorts. This man, his name will be Antiochus IV, is a genocidal psychopath, and God wants to prepare his people for those hard days. 
But before we get there, I want us to look a little closer on that verse 14. The violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. What is that saying? There is a segment of God's own beloved people that he describes not as courageous or bold or patriotic, but God calls them violent. And what's their agenda? They just want to fulfill the vision God has promised to his long-suffering people. Their overwhelming desire is to see God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They want to see God's great jubilee. They want to see divine rescue made tangible in the practical realities of human history. They want to see judgment fall on these pagan nations that keep oppressing them. They want to see the Messiah's kingdom established in the practicality of their politics. They yearn for God's future, and they are tired of waiting for it. So they choose to take matters into their own hand. They choose, they seek to force God's hand to speed up his timeline, it seems, So in faith, but in a manner of their own choosing, they're making the first move and they're asking God to honor it. God, this is the dream you gave us. Now make it happen now in our lifetime. We're we're tired of waiting. We're tired of suffering. We're tired of humiliation. Come on, God, it is go time. Your people are ready. We're going to storm the gates. Don't worry, Lord. We're ready. We'll put it all on the line. We'll fight to the death for your cause right now. But God doesn't honor their quote-unquote acts of courage and faith. God assesses the situation differently. He says, you aren't lifting up my name. You're lifting yourselves up. You're walking in the way of your own ambitions. Don't try to baptize it with my blessing. Yes, this is my promised future, that the pagans would be thrown out, that the kingdom would be established, but the way you want to go about it, this is not my way. So I stand against you. And we read, but they shall fail. The judgment of God falls on his own people. And that little nugget of verse 14, I feel it just rings out in this passage because it's the timeless temptation that will always entice God's people in difficult days. And indeed, we're going to see it pop up a little bit later in this same passage. But before we get there, let's return now to our uh, crazy dictator, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. And he shows up in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person 
to whom royal majesty has not been given, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Earlier in these prophecies from Daniel, this figure has been called the little horn. He's the Seleucid king who is just a totally brutal and aggressive ruler who will take his own kingdom after assassinating his own nephew. He's a man whose preferred political tool is just overwhelming violence. And indeed, here in this passage, we hear about how he assassinates the prince of the covenant, which is the the Jewish high priest who opposed him, a guy by the name of Onias. And we keep reading... It says in verse 23, And from the time that alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder and spoil and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great army and mighty army, but shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. So Antiochus, he's going to continue this blood feud against the Ptolemies, but God doesn't allow either kingdom to get the upper hand. It seems that he keeps foiling their plans. He keeps frustrating their efforts. Why? Because he's predestined the end of both kingdoms in his own time. The prophet Habakkuk says it well. He says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and the nations weary themselves for nothing? That's what we see. They're wearying themselves For nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One biblical scholar puts it this way Even chaotic time is appointed time, for God determines even the terms of tyrannies, and they are tethered to dates on his calendar. So we keep reading of this back and forth. We, if you go on to read it, it sounds like Antiochus is about to actually do it. He's about to conquer Egypt, but he is again thwarted. This time the Romans step in and say, you cannot conquer this kingdom. We have allied with them. So his ambitions are frustrated abroad. And what he does is he turns all that angst and all that anger back onto his own people. He starts to consolidate power at home by imposing kind of Greek cultural and religious practices upon all of his subjects 
including the Jews. He takes the title Epiphanes, which means I'm a living God. I'm God in the flesh. And he starts to do things that are just so scandalous and upsetting to faithful Jews who are trying to follow their God. He marches into the holy of holies of God's temple and he sacrifices a pig, an unclean animal, in their most sacred place. He ends biblical worship. He forbids circumcision, which is the mark of Judaism. He burns scriptures in these big bonfires. He he bans people from observing the Sabbath. He outlaws every form of law-keeping, and he makes them punishable by death. The pillars of Jewish religious life are now punishable by death. God's people are going to experience this systematic campaign of just cultural genocide. And each and every Jew is going to have a decision to make in those days. Do I assimilate into paganism? Or do I die a faithful Jew? And this whole complicated prophecy is God trying to brace them and prepare them for these dark days and to help them see what God's people are to do in such trying times. And we read this, He, Antiochus, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, those who compromise God's law. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive a little help. In days of challenge and persecution, God's people are asked to stand firm and take action. They're invited to believe, to resist, to teach, to pray. But don't misunderstand the way of Christ in these difficult seasons. He doesn't call us to fight courageously. He calls us to suffer faithfully. When they stumble, when they suffer, they shall receive a little help. And some of the wise shall stumble. They'll suffer so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. It's time for us to return to our opening riddle. What is the identifying mark of the risen Christ? Anyone, what's your answer? How would you determine which man in that room of a hundred men was Jesus? Oh, what are you doing there, Larry? The halls in his hands. It's not his charisma. 
It's not his attractiveness. It's not his air of authority, his demeanor of grace. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. By his scars will we recognize him. It's the signs of his suffering that will identify him for all eternity as God's Son and our Savior. Why would we be surprised then to discover that affliction is an identifying mark of those who live as Jesus' followers? He forever will be known by his victory through suffering. And the same is true for us. What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And if we don't get the message the first time, the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament will drive this point home He says to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Okay? Help us understand what manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. Okay, that's good. That's what Daniel's talking about. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He writes to the Romans, the spirit himself bears witness. We are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a hard message. In days of challenge and persecution, Jesus invites us into suffering. His number one priority is that we walk through these trying times in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, I will rescue, I will save in my time, but you walk in the way of Christ. You walk in the way of costly, self-giving love. God is sending you into this crucible And you will be refined, purified, made white. In those moments, you will shine like stars. You will look like Jesus, the suffering servant, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even his enemies. And in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, Jewish literature says there were many faithful Jews who walked this path of victorious suffering. 
Jewish literature tells of the scribe Eleazar, an old man who willingly accepted death rather than dishonoring God by eating pork. In the same book, 2 Maccabees, it tells of the woman Hannah and her seven sons who faced gruesome torture for their refusal to compromise God's law. Hannah had to watch as Antiochus' troops maimed and murdered each of her boys. But her heart swelled with pride as she watched each one of them keep the faith and maintain their witness. Some of their final words were recorded. One said, the Lord God is watching over us and in truth has compassion on us. Another said, because you have the authority among mortals, you do as you please. But do not think that God has forsaken our people. Keep on and see how his mighty power will rise up against you. And this one was my favorite. You dismiss us from this present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. No one wants to live through days like this. But this was the season to which the Lord was calling his people. Evil rages against his rescue and his renewal, but he, God, is at work. In darkest days, God goes with us. He calls us to stand firm, to love, to suffer, to to represent him well to the very end. He will make all things new. He will do away with evil and right every wrong. And one day we'll look back and say, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So God sends this whole complicated vision to brace God's people for times like this. And trust me, Jesus knows this is a hard row to hoe because he walked this road himself. It's the road to Calvary. 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 My mouth in that word. But he doesn't want us to lose heart. Jubilee is coming. Resurrection is coming. The renewal of all things is coming. And even those who suffer in this life, it says in this passage, will receive a little help. For those of us who are in Jesus, we know that God's spirit, his very spirit goes with us to strengthen us and to uphold us. Paul wrote, the spirit helps us in our weakness. He writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is the message here? God calls us to be his long-suffering, ever-loving, ever-faithful people as we wait for his redemption. 
So don't fall into temptation in either direction. Don't compromise with the culture by assimilating to its way of life, its paganism. But also don't compromise with the culture by choosing its methods to fight when God has called us to stand firm. It's really interesting as many examples there are of those like Hannah and her seven sons and the scribe Eleazar. There were Jews at that time who took a different path. There was a a guy, an influential priest named Mattathias who had five sons and he too received the same ultimatum to seal his witness with his blood And he took a different tactic. He decided instead to to take up arms and to kill the soldiers that were persecuting him and to murder the Jews who had compromised their faith under the face of persecution. And he he took to the hills with his sons and, and launched a guerrilla warfare, a guerrilla war against the Seleucids. And eventually the dad dies in battle and his son Judah takes up the cause. They called him Judah Maccabee, Judah the sledgehammer because he was ferocious in battle. And he takes back the city of Jerusalem from the Seleucids and he holds it by making an alliance with the pagan Romans. The Romans who will one day be just as bad if not worse than their oppressors this day. But it works. They, they carve out a little independent Jewish kingdom. And there's a, there's a kingdom again in the land. But there's so many compromises along the way. Because the way of violent power always corrupts. They got what they wanted. They made that vision of the future happen in the present. But within a few short years, this new Jewish kingdom starts doing unprecedented things. They, for the first time in their history, united the kingship with the high priesthood, which was something God's law intended to keep separate. They started to grow their power and expand their borders and f- conquer their neighbors And then they did something the Jews have never done. They forcibly converted those neighbors at the end of the sword. They start fighting amongst themselves and brother fights against brother and they're in just these brutal seasons of civil war and they're trying to recruit the the Roman legions to fight on their side to help kill their fellow countrymen. And ultimately, the Romans say, enough of this, and they just conquer the territory. One Jewish historian writes, because two brothers could not get along, we lost our freedom and our liberty to Rome. They were unwilling to suffer faithfully and trust God's redemption. They they took matters into their own hands and this was not the hope for God's people. This was not the rescue He intended. The vision was to encourage them to stand firm and trust the Lord to the very end. 
only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. May I hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Not because suffering is good, but because God is at work. He will rescue and save. And in the meantime, he will refine and purify and we will shine like his son, like the suffering servant in this world. And people will be changed by Christ's grace. So we may face difficult days. Your challenges even now may be mounting. Stand firm and walk in the way of Christ. Don't compromise to the right or to the left. Be long-suffering, ever faithful, ever loving. The Lord holds the future in his hand. He is our vindication, our hope. We've been invited to suffer with Christ, but we've also been invited to experience his victory through suffering. Anyone would come after me, deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And I'll lead you to the cross, yes. But I'll lead you to the cross and through the tomb and out into victory. Let's pray. Oh gosh, Lord. This is a text. It's complex, but beyond the complexity, it's hard. <sighs> but I take confidence knowing that it is a road you walked. We don't know what makes for peace. God, we do not know how to fix our broken world, but you do. And for some reason, you invite us to be poor in spirit, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be peacemakers, to suffer and be persecuted. But we are happy because you are at work. Through suffering comes your victory. Through your suffering comes the breaking of the power of all that ills this world. <sighs> so we end just in a place of trust. God, if you call us to suffer faithfully, we, we have to just throw ourselves on your mercy. We don't have the strength. We don't have the courage. We don't have the patience. So make us new. Give us help. Teach us what it means to pray for our enemies. 
to bless those who curse us, to bear every cost, to stand as your people, shining your love, your grace, your truth into the world. Brace us for the challenges we might face and give us a community to come alongside to encourage us forward in the way of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.